This is Erica in Edmonton. Shannon in Durham. And Chip in Durham. Welcome to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 50, Dust to Dust. We must, we must, we (laughs) must watch Dust to Dust. (laughs) Oh, so many good rhymes in this. Uh, But before we get into the episode and talk about dust busts, uh, drugged telepaths, and tripping narns, let's take a moment to pat ourselves on the back for making it to an arbitrary number of podcast episodes. We are at 50. Congrats, you guys. Did did you have any doubt at all that we would make it this far? Not once we started. (laughs) Not once once we finally started. Some of us are stubborn. (laughs) I'm just astonished that uh, it... That we did the, that we've been doing this for almost two years now. Yeah, I think the amount of time is a little bit more gobsmacking than the number itself is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks everybody for listening to this. We love you, especially you, you over there, especially you, mm-hmm. and you. Well, and and you. hey, 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 who are you saying that you love? You we love can me. all have our favorites. <laughs> oh, over there, that's my favorite. <sighs> dust to dust. <laughs> Dust to dust. So uh, let's let's jump into what you need to know sort of coming into dust to dust. So Babylon 5 is an Earth-run space station, and despite the fact that it's in neutral territory and supports many races, the political unrest on Earth has started to reach Babylon 5. Commander Ivanova's recent secret discovery that Earth President Clark may have helped assassinate his predecessor isn't helping things. The Centauri recently resubjugated the Narn, and former Narn ambassador Jakar has been fighting for his people in any way he can. A psychop named Bester has proven to be a sneaky, duplicitous fellow, and no one is ever happy to see him show up. Also, Veer is a sweet, innocent Centauri who recently became ambassador to Minbar, and Kosh is an enigmatic, enigmatic angel in an encounter suit, or something. And that brings us to Dust to Dust where Captain Sheridan continues to butt heads with Nightwatch, even more now that citizens have something concrete to point to as regards the Clark government. As if that isn't enough, everyone's favorite psychop is back. Bester claims he's there to save their butts, and actually he kind of was. He helps Garibaldi track down a dust smuggler before a large shipment of the dangerous drug can fall into the hands of the Narn resistance, but not before Jakar manages to try out a sample that lets him savagely rifle through Londo's memories. What starts as a trip down an ugly memory lane becomes a trip of a totally different kind, something approaching a religious experience, maybe? Or maybe it's those pesky, inscrutable Vorlons again. And that's dust to dust. There you go. My money's on the Vorlons. <laughs> My money's always on the Vorlons. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I guess let's just start at the beginning, the same place that the episode started. Uh, Nightwatch at it again. We open on a member of security, who's also in Nightwatch, accusing a shopkeeper of sedition. And that's not the first time we've seen that happen on Babylon 5. So it looks like maybe putting a target on Clark might have sort of put mm. the everyday citizen more on their side, but it's just giving Nightwatch more fodder. What do you guys think about that? I think uh, that it's uh, kind of disappointing that in the 24th century... 23rd century, 23rd century, actually, that uh, graphic design just really hasn't progressed very much, has it? (laughs) Some symbols are universal. Some symbols are universal, but crap printing is eternal. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, I I liked that. I liked that they um, kept that thread going, uh, following voices of authority, that they're showing some... uh, 
consequences and results, um, things that are happening uh, because of what happened last episode. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, the original, and this is this is sort of weird, we're following the master list uh, of episodes, uh, but originally uh, this episode was going to air before passing through Gethsemane, and... Mm-hmm. The, and I'm sorry, Voices no. of Authority was going to air before passing through Gethsemane. Right. Strike that. Reverse it. Um, <laughs> but uh, the graphics the graphics work in Voices would have taken too long. So they swapped them. But this works out better anyway. And JMS said, okay, fine. Yes, that's the way it ought to be. And that's why it's that way in the master list. Because this does follow immediately from the consequences of Voices, from, uh, Voices of Authority. And things are different. Things are Things things are uncomfortable. Um, uh, don't you have a boond meeting to go to? I mean, if we didn't, you know, stick a pin in it right there. There, you know, the the parallels could not be more parallel. Yeah, it's it's kind of right in our face. Is that the way you guys expected it to go after that sort of revelation, or is this sort of a, a different direction than you thought was going to come from that revelation? I I think it follows, especially since, as you said, this is not the first time we've seen Nightwatch go after some ordinary random citizen for what they deem is uh, behaving in an unseemly manner. Uh, we had, you know, Zach having being essentially forced to admit, yeah, he'd witnessed the shopkeeper um, to, uh, you know, running his mouth a bit about uh, EarthGov and not liking the way it was going. And that turned into shutting that guy's business down and arresting him. So, you know, apparently the shopkeepers at Ward's gotten around that, you know, they can call on Sheridan and Sheridan will will step down on Night Watch and tell them to back off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Stephen was not impressed with that, uh, that Night Watch guy. He was just like, he's insubordinate. And then like a moment later, he mutters under his breath, frankly, standards have slipped since Lou left. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're getting like a loo check-in with Steven apparently yeah. every single episode. Yeah. Well, I'm, I've really noticed I'm, I'm starting to pay closer attention to, you know, who's got the who's got the band and who doesn't. You know, the the mm-hmm. we see Blondie again uh meeting Bester uh a few scenes down the road, but the second um security guard that actually goes and escorts Bester does not have an armband. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, you're see- the division I'm I'm noticing much more. Mm-hmm. You know who's who's wearing the band and who isn't. Yeah, and this is continuing the thread uh, that we had last time with uh, Zach and mm-hmm. Garibaldi. You know, um, people who work in the Night Watch have two different masters now. Uh, mm-hmm. The org chart is really messy, and um, and that gets brought up right there in that in that scene. You know, yeah. Sheridan has to yank the the Night Watch guy back to the point of you are still a military officer under my command. You're, you're on my station. You're I'm the captain. Yep. And yeah, the uh, the Night Watch. I, I thought it was interesting too talking about Blondie then interacting with Bester later on. I for some reason I think I just expected since since he's kind of villainy because he's a Night Watch. I sort of expected him to side with Bester, but he was just as cold and terse to Bester as I would expect anybody else on Babylon Five to be. So it's nice that you're still not getting you know clear cut. Mm-hmm. This is a bad guy. This is a good guy. There are shades of gray, and everybody has you know. And we all still hate opinions. telepaths, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> I guess yeah. so. Well, but yeah. yeah. So so speaking of telepaths, Night Watch is not the only branch of of Earth's institutions to pop up on the station. We've got Bester back. Yay! Yep. Yay. I mean, we yep. hate it. We hate him, but uh, this is we, this is his, this but is Walter his... Koenig is so good at we make, love playing him. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
yeah, Stephen was super excited. He was just like, ah, holy S. He didn't say S. <laughs> um, he was just like, I was wondering when he was going to turn up again. He was very excited by it. Yeah. Well, he's a he's a great character. And uh, Walter Koenig, you know, bless his heart, you know. Um, after having been trapped in the Chekhov role for so long, um, to, to play a, a completely different kind of character, um, essentially a supervillain. I mean, when you mm-hmm. get right down to it, um, mm-hmm. and um, and Koenig's an older guy at this point, and he's but he's uh, playing a super powerful telepath, so he can he doesn't have to out macho um, Garibaldi. Um, and the fact that they they cut him off at the knees and he still dominates the scenes that he's in, even without being able to use his abilities. He is still pivotal to the story and his character still shines through. That's that's a lovely bit of writing of JMS to be able to do that. Yeah. And, and this being the third time we've seen Bester on Babylon 5 and the third time that Bester's come to the station, you know, Familiarity breeds contempt, but it also breeds comfort. Bester has never been more at ease on the station. He has never been more comfortable. Um, you know, he, he's 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 loose, and, and 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 it's 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 just kind of wild seeing him. You know, you're you're calling me a pinata. You mean that I am uh, I, I'm dispensing. Get to- goodies to children, and I make them happy, and all that. Thank you. You know, um, he he's he's holding all the cards, and he's just utterly in control. And I love that about him. I even like the way Koenig plays him after he's taken the sleepers, and you you sort of get the sense that it's start immediately starting to take a little bit of effect because he's a little loopy. I- I'm here to save your butts. Show a little <laughs> respect. That's something he never would have said before. Mm-hmm. Well, a little of it, I think the mission is more clear cut this time. Uh, you know, he is after somebody dealing a dangerous substance. Um, he's not chasing any rogue telepaths that the command staff might have had sympathy po- before like they did in the past. So I think that's part of part of the reason he might be feeling much more relaxed in the current mission. Yeah, he doesn't have to play games quite as much uh, as he did before because he doesn't feel like he needs to be at odds with them, except for just, you know, the basic way that he always is. And I do like your point, Chip, too, about, you know, familiarity sort of breeding comfort. The more he gets to know these people, the the better he probably feels about the way he can interact with them. I mean, I'm sure he's used to just reaching inside of people's minds, but uh, to a certain extent, there's also sort of the psychological knowing how to deal with someone to get the responses that you want out of their minds and the better he knows somebody the better he knows how to sort of tweak them and even without knowing you know what Garibaldi's reactions are in a telepathic sort of way he can see Garibaldi's reactions on his face and he knows that he's doing a good job needling him all the way through there uh, but he almost doesn't make it onto the station because Ivanova almost blows him mm-hmm. out of the sky or out of space to be more accurate yeah she yeah her, her wounding a little is an interesting definition yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we start out and the lines are kind of drawn immediately. Uh, mm-hmm. Garibaldi goes a little goes a little real politic, which is kind of a little scary for a security guard. And he flatly says, you know, option one is option one is we're, we're in trouble. Option two is we kill him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know that he was actually recommending it. He's just sort of coldly Laying evaluating. It out. Yeah. Um, but, He's security. Uh, he, he looks at the options. Yeah. I mean... 
and, and you know, he's already compromised because he's in a bit of a conspiracy. But uh, Ivanova's on board with that idea. Sheridan and Franklin, no way. So it's inter- it's it's good to see that they're not all, you know, Starfleet around the conference table um, on the Enterprise, politely discussing their options, and they're all on the same side anyway. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, Ivanova, she's been she's been planning this. She's been planning this as a possibility. I don't know if that's the case. Well, she, she said, said I've that- been saying it for weeks, but that's also the, it could actually have been acting up for weeks. So I didn't. I didn't. That may have that been part of the reason that she yeah. may have. It felt. It did feel spur of the moment to me, mm-hmm. uh, as well. Just you know the the fact that you know she's you know feeling backed into a corner every time Bester gets near her. It's another risk of him discovering that she's a latent telepath, and so it it feels in character for certainly for her to con- consider the possibility that this is the only way to protect them from him, um, and. It, it felt it felt spur of the moment to me that's you know taking advantage of the fact that yes the defense grid may have been acting up recently but um but then of course mm-hmm. Sheridan stops her and this the is thing- the first time that Bester has shown up since she admitted that she's a latent right. telepath that's true the, the only thing I did not like about that was the fact that she had to speak out loud and talk to herself in yeah. order to get yeah. get her thoughts across to the audience and I just I that makes my teeth ache when stuff like that happens so that wasn't yeah that wasn't the best mm-hmm. but uh, still interesting that she was ready to go to those lengths that's that is that is a big deal um, I think Probably my favorite part of all of that, though, was like the giant showdown that happens when Bester comes around the corner to say hello to everybody. And suddenly there's a room full of Minbari telepaths. What's going on? <laughs> and what a, what a clever way to possibly get around it. So, you know, your choice is Minbari telepaths following us everywhere or you take the sleepers, the drugs that'll dull mm-hmm. your telepathy. Uh, how did you guys feel about his uh, his choice and the way they managed to get out of having him back? this way um i I, lovely uh and right especially that opening gambit uh where uh sheridan where where he rounds the corner there are the minbari and uh he's like what's the meaning of this and sheridan says with a smile you want it polite or do you want it straight up yes and and bester's (laughs) like oh straight up and those are those are fantastic moments right there when um, when the script allows the characters to just drop drop their pretenses and just go after each other. If my least favorite um, if my least favorite trope in television writing is the misunderstanding because characters aren't clearly communicating with each other, mm-hmm. this is the opposite of that. This is like I don't like you. I don't trust mm-hmm. you. This is the way it's going to go. And we know we don't like and trust each other. I, I, it's it's lovely. Yeah. And as far as Bester's choice, um, I think it was a no-brainer on his part. Um, I mean, any exposure to alien telepaths runs the risk of, you know, them, you know, accidentally brushing across some of his secrets because, you know, he doesn't know exactly how things work with them. Uh, he needs the freedom to you know, move around and act on his own without somebody shadowing him. So um, I I was not at all surprised that he, you know, immediately went for the sleepers. 
Mm-hmm. So how do you guys feel about Bester as a character by this point? We've seen him a few couple of times before, and, and now we've seen him, and, and he has a lot of one-on-one time with Garibaldi to, to wander around and sort of to defend himself a, a little bit uh, in, a, in a way. He... Does, do you think he has good points? I mean, he's he's saying that he, I do what I do to protect Earth, same as you, and compares himself, you know, his badge and, and uniform and the ability to intimidate to mm-hmm. Garibaldi's badge and uniform. And honestly, by the end of this episode, I was sort of feeling like, you know, maybe Bester's got a little bit of a bad rap. You know, he's he's just doing it because that's <laughs> what he feels is right. <laughs> Until, of course, his last scene. But yeah, I was about to say that just cut cuts off any possible you know, sympathy someone might have felt for Bester, that, that cuts it off at the knees because, um, yeah, to find out that, you know, that the Psychor apparently was developing dust all along to try and make more telepaths, it's like right. they're not right. going to be satisfied until everyone's a telepath. Yeah, Bester looks better by dragging the people around him down. He mm-hmm. points, I mean, he points out, you know, Garibaldi lashes into Bester for intimidating um, their witness. and But he does this after Garibaldi has grabbed the guy by the back of the neck and uh, intimidated him himself. So, you know, the moral equivalence doesn't lift Bester up. It, 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 drags, it drags Garibaldi down with him a bit. Well put. Well put. I... Personally, just appreciated having a villain that is not so mustache twirly. He actually has, you know, you can sort of see things from his point of view a little bit, mm-hmm. even if you are right. That's it's really the dark side that's pointing, giving us this point of view. But at least it's being outlined fairly well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, little <clears throat> slip that he makes, uh, almost using the word <laughs> dissection, however. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there was still a fair bit of argument at the time of whether he was lying or not. And people didn't know if Andrea Thompson would ever come back or not. She might. She might not. We will remain mum on the subject. But that that was kind of uh, a, a, not a nice thing to say to Garibaldi. What a jerk. <laughs> just just what a jerk. Uh, and I guess that kind of sums up Bester pretty well. Um, yeah. Any, any I last think, thoughts about him? Oh, yeah, well, sure. just in that, in that scene... Um, I felt like the way Koenig played it, that it was clear that Bester was was lying and dramatically doing it just to just to smack Garibaldi mentally. That 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 really was the only reason because they brought Talia up, so he was going to take advantage and and hit somebody where they hurt. Yeah, I definitely thought that that is why he said it. I don't mm-hmm. necessarily. I don't. I, I don't have any feeling one way or the other about whether that was a deliberate lie just to, to get Garibaldi's goat, but whether it's true or not, I, I definitely think that he was just just as Ivanova said, you know, mm-hmm. drilling for uh, stronger emotions so he could follow mm-hmm. those down and, and get into his mind. Mm-hmm. Well, turning from our delicious, delightful bad guy here, um, our Centauri duo is back together at last. That is another thing that Steven was very, very excited about. He was just like, oh, <laughs> he's back. I knew he wouldn't stay gone. So big relief for Steven. <laughs> <laughs> was it not the last episode where Steven was complaining about Veer's presence in the credits? I'm just asking. Yep. Yes, it was. He was he was not so much complaining as just being, you know, kind of silently irate and making gestures at the screen. <laughs> So according to the uh, uh, notes that JMS made online um, that are reproduced at the Lurker's Guide, um, the 
creative staff for the show have created, you know, languages, you know, uh, alphabets for all of the different alien characters. And uh, they asked if they could put lettering on uh, Vera's shirt. JMS says, sure. And JMS sees it on set and asks what it says. And the the costume designer says, aloha. (laughs) Okay. Oh. Oh, Veer. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. He's he's back and... And he's still defending Londo. We had that scene where uh, Delenn is, interestingly, being the moderator uh, between Londo and, um, was it the Drazi? Yes. Mm-hmm. Remembering wrong. Okay, yeah. So the Drazi. And uh, Londo's not exactly much of a negotiator and just kind of storms out. And we still got Veer in his corner. Uh, but do you guys think that Veer is, is just gone too far in being naive at this point? Or do you think he really sees something in Londo? Uh, I don't think he's that naive. I think he's seen enough as far as Londo's dealings. Um, I think it's more wishful thinking on his part, hoping Uh, that there is something good in Londo left. If someone will keep trying to tell him and other people that Londo still has some good in him somewhere that maybe somehow, well, I guess in a way that is somewhat naive, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, I, I think he's, he, he's trying to convince Londo and other people just by continuing to voice the possibility that um, that he can be redeemed. He's going to make the right decision, you know, and then, oh, man, Lanier's line just that was cold. (laughs) It it really was that I just sort of that hit my heart. Yeah, (laughs) a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was just kind of like, damn. Yeah. I think Veer's been hanging around on Minbar too long. He's uh, he's mm-hmm. a, a, a place, a, a, a spiritual, peaceful place that's not involved in any fighting right now. He's enjoying himself there. Um, you know, he's he's probably de- developed a taste for Flarn. Um, <laughs> and probably respected, treated well. Respected and treated well. Um, and you know, he's coming back. I think just just a general, generally more sunny disposition. And that, I guess, is giving him a little bit more hope, considering that, you know, he when he left, he was worried that him being away would be bad for Londo. Mm-hmm. That's true. And then, and then, of course, he comes to the conclusion that if, if Londo were to go there, too, it, that would, it that would do the help. same thing for him, which I, I do think that that is a little bit naive. And I just mm-hmm. I found where I wrote down Linear's line that a, a darkness in the heart cannot be cured by moving mm-hmm. the body. Oh, that's a gut punch. Yep. Yeah. Um, but it, it is good to see him again. Um, he's a, he, he continues to be a great character. And I I have been that guy much, much, many, many years ago. I've been that guy sort of hovering over my boss as my boss reads my reports and stuff. <laughs> you know, um, there's a nice little bit of uh, parallelism between... Uh, Londo's suggested edits and um, uh, Musante's um, Mm -hmm. rewriting the dictionary um, in um, the last episode. You know, this is um, this is this is real politic versus idealism. This is um, this is cold versus warm. And every government trying to direct its own story. Yeah. Mm hmm. 
Yep. Well, if nothing else, it was nice nice to see the two of them together again. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, until they both got beat up by Jakar. <laughs> so yeah. I guess, okay, now we can move on and we can talk about the dust plot because I know you want to, Chip. Um, so yes, we have we have dust and Narns yeah. and, and, and ex-Ambassador Jakar being just desperate for any weapon, even one that might not work. Yeah. Go mm-hmm. for it, Chip. Uh, well, one thing I'd like to point out is that this episode has a lot of callbacks all the way to The Gathering. Um, Dust was introduced in The Gathering, um, the, the TNT special edition, that is, uh, when uh, a Dust smuggler tries to get on the station and uh, Sinclair and Garibaldi take him down. Uh, so, uh, we, so we've seen, so this time we've seen exactly what dust is and what it can do, and it is not good at all. Um, uh, but also we have the, uh, in, in the gathering, Jakar tried to open up a negotiation with Lita mm-hmm. over getting her genetic information so that, because the Narn have no telepaths. And we find out a little bit more about that, uh, in this episode as well, that there used to be Narn telepaths, but... They, their families were exterminated, and we don't know why. We don't know why or by whom, um, but uh, you know, desperate times. Uh, so the dust subplot, the dust is actually sort of the MacGuffin to get us to the point where Jakar takes down Londo, and that to me is the heart of this story. The dust, the the dust subplot with the. Um, with the um with Garibaldi and Bester working together that's fun but you know it's it's resolved in an instant it's you know mm-hmm. they, they 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 stake out the thing you know it's really a really a mundane uh, bit of police work where the where the energy in the story is for me is Jakar beating the hell out of Londo and then rummaging through his mind and that dream sequence and uh that that confrontation when Jakar learns so much more about Londo and what's going what's going on in his head is just powerful and for it to end with Jakar sobbing next to Londo's unconscious bloodied form um this is not one of the most artfully directed episodes, but there are some really strong moments, and that one is one of the strongest in this series for me. Yeah, I think the strong moments in this actually come more from the acting than the directing. Uh, you know, the only directorial touch that I that particularly jumped out at me was actually when Jakar has first got the dust, and he's, you know, stumbling around, and he gets in the elevator, and you mm-hmm. get that stereotypical shot of him looking at his own hand, like, ooh, have you ever really looked at a Narn hand, dude? Like, oh, that was, that was a little much. But then you get into that, that sequence where he's actually confronting Londo in his own head, and you get fantastic performances on both sides and i do you know i guess from a directorial standpoint i do appreciate that they did a lot of that just against a black background rather than trying to invent something for Mm -hmm. for much of it and the the sequence where you get the flash 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 Mm -hmm. of all of the stuff that londo has seen and done before was i think it was appropriately overwhelming because by the end of it i was just like whoa you know i was seeing trails so so it wasn't entirely (laughs) all off (laughs) shannon what did you think um i agree that um that again that the acting carries most of this um like you said the directing is 
there's not a whole lot of imagination to the directing this time around, it seems. Um, although David Eagle, Eagle's done um, In the Shadow of Zaha Doom, which, you know, had some strong points to it. Uh, he will go on to do some other episodes that um, have some really good stuff in them. Uh, but th- for this one, yeah, it, it's the acting, the dialogue, carrying things through. Um, the one thing, uh, as far as, you know, during Jakar's, uh, the first part of Jakar's trip, I actually didn't like the visuals very much. The The red and green is just felt like, you know, 3D overlay or something. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't work for me as much. Um, what did work for me was the, um, the, the voices, the, as the crowd goes past Jakar, uh, hearing the, hearing the buzz of people's thoughts as they went by uh, reminded me of some of the tricks they've pulled to represent telepathic communication and telepathic thought. And I thought that was good. Um, yeah. But, and that yeah. also sort of points forward toward we get the the judge's verdict at the end where she mm-hmm. points out that this had to be premeditated because he went all the way to Londo's quarters right. to, to mm-hmm. get Londo. Yeah. And yeah he, he, did. he wasn't that far gone. Yeah, yeah, like he had to, he had to, you know, sort of squint and, and bear it a little bit as those people walked past because he didn't want to dive into the wrong head. So he was really yeah. trying. Mm-hmm. Some yeah. great uh, under the makeup acting by um, Peter Jurisic and Stephen First uh, after they have been just beaten up, mm-hmm. and and the the the, bruta- the brutality of Jakar's attack is not minimized at all. I mean, Londo is sobbing. Londo mm-hmm. is sobbing. Yep. Um, and as much as we hate Londo for the things that he's done, and as much as we think that he had this coming, you know, it's still very uncomfortable for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's also more good under the makeup acting coming from uh, the other Narn in Jakar's dream, which I think is supposed to represent his father. Yeah, I actually do have a question about that, which that was one thing that kind of bothered Stephen uh-huh. and to me as well. Is you do you definitely see Jakar's father hanging mm-hmm. from the, the from the tree and and he died. Yeah. Now is that other Narn that he turns around and starts talking to? Is that supposed to be the same actor under makeup, or is it supposed to be a different Narn? Stephen Stephen afterwards said that was, he said I I have to ask that he said I don't want to be racist, but I have to admit yeah. that from afar all Narns look alike. It's like oh honey. Yeah, that was my impression. Now, it's yeah. possible that it's two different actors, but my impression was that it was the same actor in both situations who happened to be who happens to be Jim Norton, um Ombudsman Wellington from season 1 mm-hmm. and Dr. Lazarin from Confessions and Lamentations. He's back. I did recognize his name in the credits, so and I yeah. so I, I knew that it was him as the the second Narn, the one not up the tree. But that is mm-hmm. this this is sort of a black mark on the directorial side because mm-hmm. we never got a close enough shot of the Jakar's father hanging there mm-hmm. to actually know whether it was supposed to be uh, the same person or not. But I mean, regardless, it's I don't think that. I never thought at all that it was Jakar's actual father talking to him. It was someone right. or something taking the form of Jakar's father right. in both, both or one case. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then sort of taking the form of Jelan, uh, the angelic figure who we also saw briefly in that um, in that uh, montage sequence uh, at the end of The Fall of Night in season two. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when Jakar to comes to, blatant. just to make it blatant, just to make it to, Jakar comes to, collapses in size, and and who comes, who, who is in the room, him? who is in the room in a, in a mysterious bulkhead that we've never seen in Londo's quarters before, but, but Kosh. 
Yeah, I, I didn't think they were actually they, in Londo's quarters. Yeah, I'm not I, sure they're still in Londo's quarters at that point. It it seemed like they he dragged him out to a random hallway. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, that's what I thought. But yes, it's Kosh. Yep. Kosh. <laughs> I asked Stephen afterwards, so what do you think of the Vorlons now? And uh, I will edit this, but he said, uh, frickin' Vorlons. They know what's <laughs> going on. It's coming along. This seed is finally sprouting. He knows what he's doing. I do not trust them. <laughs> so that's, that's Stephen's thought on the Vorlons. Nothing, nothing much has changed there. He's just shaking his head at him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but um, I, it, it's, it's Andreas Katsoulos' greatest performance so far. He goes through. He goes through the gamut. He is the conniver, very, very similar to the Jakar that we knew right from the beginning. You know, making his deal with the drug dealer. Uh, but he's he. But he's also the desperate patriot. Then he's stoned out of his mind. Yeah, he he doesn't let anybody else take the risk. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very Jakar. Yeah, that's true. Um, he is crazy whacked out on drugs and he is violent and then he is in the dream world he is accusatory and sarcastic and mocking and then he is humbled and then he is broken and then he is at peace and this is all in the space of 44 minutes of television yeah, it was a really different Jakar that we see at the end mm-hmm. in the courtroom scene. You know, I, th- I thought it was interesting and nice of Sheridan to stand up and speak for him, but he didn't even seem like he, he needed that. And I mean, really, <clears throat> he only got 60 days in jail. I was kind of yeah. like, okay, well, that's that's interesting. But <clears throat> but he doesn't care. He just seems like he accepts it. It is it is meant to be. And that is that is not the Jakar that we saw before. He was he was not accepting of his fate uh, when things didn't go his way. He was always such a fighter, which is why he took the dust in the first place. But mm-hmm. something has changed. Yeah, and, and he's, he's actually being kind of given instructions. You know, think about things differently. Think about, don't, think about sacrificing yourself. And, and, Broaden and, your horizons. It's not yeah. just the Narn. Yeah, and we go back to we go back all the way to midnight on the firing line. Um, uh, when um, Kosh tells Sinclair they are a dying people, we should let them pass. And uh, Sinclair says, "Who the Nard or the Centauri?" And Kosh says, "Yes." We go so in the dream, which clearly Kosh had something to do with the image of. Jakar's father is saying we are a dying people. Mm-hmm. Now you put the you put those together. And this is really kind of, really really kind of creepy. Creepy to the point where there is a sign literally on the wall behind Kosh that says warning when he moves away. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Yes. Some of us must be sacrificed if all are to be saved. Like we end on that. So it's a uh, it's quite impressive. Well, anything else to uh, to bring up in non-spoiler space, whether it be about Jakar or anything else? Uh, I think that this is a really powerful episode. I love it to bits um, um, because of the journey that Jakar goes through in this one. Um, 
Your husband alluded in, on Twitter before we recorded to not caring for dream sequences, and <laughs> I was thoroughly expecting him to be referring to this sequence, which is so important to Jakar, um, uh, ha- has so much impact on the character. I was prepared to disown your husband. <laughs> well, this uh, I don't think he was terribly fond of this dream sequence, but that is not what prompted his uh, his tweet about about it giving a moratorium on dream sequences. It was because we were discussing it afterwards, and he, since we're watching it every two weeks, it's a lot harder for him to remember stuff that has happened over the course of the last two years. Uh, so he had a an entirely different interpretation of the dream than we did. He didn't actually th- realize or think that that Kosh had anything to do with the dream whatsoever. He just thought Kosh was there watching Jakar go through some drugged out trippy haze. Mm. Whereas, I mean, to me, at least it seemed pretty obvious that that was, that was uh, the Borlon yeah. doing something. And one of the reasons that I, I pointed out when I was explaining to him why I thought this was because we have precedent for Kosh being able to speak directly into someone's mind in kind of a dream sequence. And I said, do you remember the episode where Sheridan was kidnapped by the the Streeb aliens and he saved that Narn to to get away? And and Stephen was like, yeah, I remember that episode, but he didn't have a dream in it, did he? And I said, yes, actually he did. Mm -hmm. I I brought it up on YouTube and I showed him the dream sequence and the part where, you know, Kosh is, is possibly speaking to Sheridan. And he was kind of gobsmacked because he didn't remember that that had happened. He didn't remember the dream sequence. He didn't remember anything about it. So he was a little bit frustrated, I think, just by threads being planted that way. He actually, he said, this is a show that was written for the DVDs before the DVD box set before we had DVD box sets. And I think he's right. It's the continuity that we have so commonly in television shows now because people buy the the box set at the mm-hmm. time. That wasn't the case. This was or really... the shows even get released all at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's ahead of its time. It was ahead yeah. of its time. But yeah, I, but I think JMS was trying to compensate for the you know weekly television you know season after season of a year at the time because number one we've got the Narn speaking in sort of the cryptic language that would make one think of Vorlons, mm-hmm. potentially. And then we have, of course, the glowing f- angelic figure that, yep. you know, some people would hopefully have remembered from the fall of night. And then if that's not enough, you've got, um, you've got Kosh standing there looming over the uh, Lond- Jakar and Londo at the end. So, I mean, JMS tried like two or three different ways to show that this was Kosh's doing, I think. Yep, I agree. But I mean, overall, Stephen actually did quite like this episode. He said it was good. He did say that it, overall, it is still rare for Babylon 5 to kind of go inside the mind like that, which which it is. We haven't seen it over, you know, overly much. Um, because and he thought it was interesting that it actually started in Londo's mind when Jakar mm-hmm. dives in there, but then it actually ends in Jakar's mind. So it's clearly Jakar that's the, the one that has this experience within his head. So I thought that was that was an interesting thing to, to point out. He was just mm-hmm. um, kind of annoyed by the Vorlons at the end, as he usually is. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right. Well, on that note, um, I think it's probably time to take our leave of the new folks. Uh, your homework for next time in two weeks. Come back because we will be talking about exogenesis. Um, until then, do come and chat with us online on Twitter and Tumblr at B5 Audio Guide and visit our website, b5audioguide.com. And let us know what you think about dustbusters and trips. And 
There are spoilerific sections for folks who want to talk about the story in relation to the whole five-year arc. And if you are watching the show for the first time and don't want to get spoiled, we do have spoiler-free sections. And if that's you, it is time to hit the departing shuttle because we are about to go through the spoiler space jump gate. Borlons! Yep. <laughs> Creating new Narn religions, just like they did a thousand years ago. Creating yeah. old religions. Yeah. So hard for me to sort of be like, yes, really, this was Kosh without, you know, like I had to cite specific precedent in order to make sure it wasn't me talking ahead, knowing <laughs> knowing things that I shouldn't know yet. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um. If we... <sighs> It's it's so bloody manipulative. It is the most clearly manipulative thing that the Vorlons have done, and we're watching it happen in real time. Kosh is encouraging Jakar to sacrifice himself and his people. And mm-hmm. and we will see Jakar come out of this thing, you know, serene and enlightened and a hero, and he's going to be let in on the war council and you know he's this is this is his turning point and it's it's so great for him and yet basically i feel like kosh was programming him to sacrifice himself you know and that is the the only the only <laughs> the only the only saving grace i i, I feel for, for all of this is that kosh is more benign and more benevolent than the rest of Kosh's people. Mm-hmm. So well, he, we, we sort so, of see that. Yeah. So, so he probably meant it for to be helpful to to Jakar, but it's also furthering the Vorlon agenda of just getting all the pieces in place to make sure that the that the shadows are annihilated and that the Vorlons, uh, the, and that the Vorlons' way of life uh, sort of wins the argument. Yeah, because that's the, they're completely laying down the the philosophy, you know, straight to Jakar. Jakar is going to write it down. It's going to eventually blossom into the Book of Jakar. So it's going to become a new, you know, holy book for the Narn. And you know, with for the Vorlons, I guess the idea is that a thousand years from now, you know, if the Narn are still there, they will be programmed to the way the Mimbari were programmed a thousand years ago um, with. Um, with the Vorlons messing around and cre- helping create Valen. Yeah, yeah, and and programmed may be too harsh a term in terms of like you know it's not it's not literal mind control or anything like that. But the, the Vorlon shadow fight is all about philosophies, mm-hmm. and the uh, Mimbari totally bought into the Vorlon philosophy, and um, this is their opportunity to get the Narn on their side as well. Not just fighting on their side, but thinking the way that they want them to think. Mm-hmm. making the choices that they want them to make. Yeah. I'm sorry for busting out into giggles a couple of minutes ago, but the way you phrased it, I am old school Harry Potter fandom steeped in the fan fiction and all that. And there's so many fanfics about how Dumbledore pr- basically programs Harry from birth to be the sacrifice. And that just rang a bell with me. Hmm. <laughs> I bet that was an homage to Babylon 5 the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that J.K. Rowling spent uh, yeah, all her yeah, time sure, on the Lurker's Rowling Guide. Was, yeah. yeah, sure, Rowling was um, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. watching the show and reading the Lurker's Guide at the time. Sure. Yep, totally. <laughs> totally. 
Although I do think with the Vorlands, it is interesting that, yes, they they sort of plant this seed in Jakar, and it really blossoms in the way that they want it to. But by the time that it has fully blossomed and he has really made the complete spiritual change and, you know, become the guy who writes the book of, of Jakar and all that stuff, that's they're already gone. <laughs> like, they've been yeah. booted. <laughs> so they don't ever quite get to see that flower grow completely, mm-hmm. which is, you know, mm-hmm. knowing what we know about them now makes me kind of go, ha, 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 in your face. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, now J- JMS has said online, uh, and this is not re- reflected in the show because the show never got that far, but um, um, we will see in the deconstruction of Falling Stars that the humans have uh, evolved into basically the next generation of first ones which means I guess they're the next ones. But uh, <laughs> but uh, he said that the the Membari follows soon after, but the Narn and Centauri never get there. You know, they never die mm-hmm. out. They just never evolve past that point. You know, they are a dying race. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's just, and, and, you know, in a sense, they're a dying race because the Vorlons tell them that they are. They tell Jakar that they are. Mm-hmm. Self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Well, speaking of, of evolution, um, we have telepaths mm-hmm. and Bester. And uh, am I the only one who just as he I felt like he got more fleshed out in this episode as far as his motivations for why he's doing things. And I kept thinking forward to to how much more we learn about this character and how much more we find out about his motivations for things and, you know, his mm-hmm. his lover and and his his grand plans for all of the telepaths for the future and and all of that stuff and it was it was hard for that not to color my viewing of him in this episode did you guys have that same trouble i didn't have that i I wasn't thinking that far ahead necessarily on bester specifically but oh man when he said telepaths are all that stand between you and the abyss i was just like ding 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 ding, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you ain't kidding Mm mm-hmm because, yeah, that's incredibly prophetic, as it turns out that the Shadow's only weakness is telepaths. Right. So. Um, yeah. I, I, I. This is the first time, I think, that we really and truly see the real Bester. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because uh, they just didn't have that much time to create the character in the previous two uh, outings. And didn't, nec- you know... Walter Koenig might not have been available. He might not have worked out. JMS might not have been satisfied with his performance or whatever. You know, um, you feel in this episode that JMS is, uh, you know, putting his money down. You know, mm-hmm. this, this this is an important character. This is a this is this will be a long term um, antagonist for the uh, Babylon Five folks. And especially, you know, this is the this is laying the groundwork for that beautiful relationship between Bester and Garibaldi. <laughs> you have a different different definition of beautiful, there, sir. Yeah, yeah, and and there's bits of that sort of like you know all over the place here between their interactions. Just um, yeah, I kept thinking down the road of you know when when Bester you know they, when they take him and program him and and turn Garibaldi into the the worst kind of spy, one that doesn't know he's a spy. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. When they w- basically uh, Bester will do Italia on Garibaldi, mm-hmm. and um, 
but it's not foreordained in this episode that it's going to turn out that that way. You could just as easily see them becoming the the regular, you know, the uh, antagonist you love to hate kind of characters. Uh, you know, Mark Shepard versus Timothy Hutton on leverage. You know, sort of mm-hmm. um, um, recurring nemeses, but not really just sort of basically Jakar and uh, Jakar and Bester are on get onto the flight path that Londo and Jakar are on at this point. You know, eternal enemies kind of thing. Um, that's not the way that Londo and Jakar will ultimately wind up, but it could have gone, it, it didn't necessarily have to go in that totally dark direction, but, uh, Bester's Bester. So that's exactly where it's going to go. And he has so much, so much more coming. Like, you know, I, I, I try not to go too overboard with with talking about him and getting excited about him because I don't necessarily want Steven to to know that there's that much ahead but you know I, I just kept kind of wondering to myself what if Sheridan hadn't shown up and stopped Ivanova and said belay that order before she mm-hmm. fired like how much would that have changed the face of, of all of the rest of, of what comes later because Bester was a key part of of a lot of different little things mm-hmm. yeah. if Ivanova if had done that so, no <laughs> No matter about clearing the clearing the command deck or you know things that she'd been saying all, along, she would have taken she would have taken she would not only have ended her own career but the inquiries would have ended Sheridan's career mm-hmm. everything would have fallen apart so yeah, she would yeah totally be bringing about what she was trying to prevent yeah and that was actually a problem that I sort of had with the writing of this episode because. She's yes, she's emotional, but I feel like she's smarter than that. And she should have been able to overcome that emotion because I was surprised when Sheridan walked in and said, no, the plan will work. And she said, no, it won't. It's not a good enough plan. I it just felt like if he would have come in and said, hey, we actually have a plan now where she hadn't known it before. I would have bought her trying to fire mm. on, on Bester without having a plan or thinking there wasn't one coming. But but she knew that that was that the plan that ended up working. She knew that that was a thing that was going to happen. So it was a little bit iffy for me as far as Ivanova as a character making that move with that amount of information in her back pocket. I agree. I think I agree with you. I can I can see possibly in with JMS in in planning this, him thinking maybe that her fear of being discovered as a latent telepath might have driven this, but. Yeah, but but the fact that she knew that they had a plan going, yeah, really undercuts that. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she's smart enough to to have thought forward to know what the repercussions of her blowing Bester up would be. I don't think she's a dumb enough character to think that she was going to get away with it. And, mm-hmm. you know, all of the pieces that are going to fall after that were certainly going to screw everybody over, not just her. I wonder if this was an episodic decision, you know. Um, you know, sacrificing the the dramatic logic of the series to give us a moment in the episode that emphasizes how dangerous and untrustworthy uh, Bester is. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, or I, how or how high the stakes are getting for the um, for the war, well, what what will be turned into the War Council when things kick in? But yeah, possibly, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, let's turn to Londo for just a moment. Uh, we get Veer's quote about, you know, someday he'll surprise you. And of course, we know that Londo is going to, uh, he's not going to turn a corner in the way that we just saw Jakar do, but he's not going to continue down this path and become a mustache twirling villain the way it looks like he's going to right now. So really, you know, Veer is right. But uh, what do you yeah. guys think about Londo at this point? Uh, what, something I really meant to bring up in the first half before we went into spoilers, I really liked the echoes and, and the callbacks. Again, you know, the, this episode, like Chip said, has a lot of callbacks. But bringing us back to the point, confirming what was what was more or less said in season one, that Londo was assigned to Babylon 5 because he was expendable. And, you know, nobody else wanted it. And he was considered a joke. Let's just get him somewhere where he can't mess anything up. Um not long after, Veer is brought in under the same premise. Here's this, you know, little wastrel that um, that nobody knows what to do with. Well, here we'll go give him to Londo. He needs an aide. You know, we'll we'll let him have his. We'll let him have his diplomatic staff. Um, and you know, they've gone both come such a long way from that in two different ways. Londo is no longer a joke, but he is also one of the one of the biggest problems of the station. Uh, his power is dangerous. His power is causing problems. Uh, Veer is growing in a different direction. Uh, he is, you know, the kind of like the inverse of, of Londo's uh, path because he is expanding. He is learning about other cultures and it's making him into a better person. Chip, any thoughts on Londo and where he's headed? <laughs> Not especially at this point. Um, you know, he's he's continuing to pay the price for the decisions that he's made, but he's going to make some worse ones soon when when Morden manipulates him in back into uh, the Shadow's arms. So um, the the only thing that I'll sort of point my finger to is when Veer says, you know, that he'll surprise them. Uh, you know he will he will redeem himself somewhat he will um he will kill cartagia he'll end centauri hostilities he will help rally support uh to get the uh, interstellar alliance behind um sheridan's faction as they uh try to retake earth so in that sense, yeah, he's going to surprise them. Um, of course, it, it, he's still got a tragic end. He's going to spend the last 20 years of his life um, in the thrall of a, of a drock keeper, and he's just going to be an awful person when he's not drunk. You know, so, <laughs> so I think Veer's line is a little more hopeful than prophetic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. I agree. Well, what else do you guys have? Anything else that you noticed uh, that made you think about the whole arc? Well, this is the first time that Kosh has taken the guise of someone's dad. He will do that a couple of times with Sheridan down mm -hmm. the line when he needs to communicate with him. I think yeah. just the once, actually. Was it just once? I thought it was a couple times. It, I think I, it may you... be just once. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, in, the, in the course of the whole show, we see Sheridan's parents twice because we okay. already saw his parents, the non-Rance Howard version of his dad when uh, mm -hmm. right. Gray 17 is missing. Or right. is, it, is that the one? I'm getting mixed up on yeah, my yeah, episode yeah. titles. No, no, uh, um, the one with, uh, um, I, I know which one we're talking about, the one where uh, the alien, the, the, the gas alien is trying to get back the to- The hitchhiker, uh, yeah. yeah. Yep, exactly. 
Yep. So, so we, we did see his, his father mm-hmm. there, um, but we didn't, we don't get the, you know, sort of the personalization of the character and the touching, right. <laughs> touching right. performance from Rance Howard. Yeah. Until later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, Kosh seems to be fond of, of pretending to be a father figure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, perhaps another just manipulation technique from the Vorlons, mm-hmm. you know, recognizing what a father means to people psychologically and, and taking that form because it's, you know, one more little poke in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else, Chip? Um, well, I, well, I apologize. Um, I noticed that we have, um, although they don't show him taking the stems, we see Stephen in a stressed out situation again. Uh, mm. trying to deal with things and snapping and uh, biting the head off of uh, one of his um, one of his doctors who actually has something important to share and yeah. and he apologizes again he it's, does. A, it's it it's it's a nice careful progression um, that uh, Stephen that Stephen is on um, he doesn't he doesn't fall all the way down uh, quite quite as quickly as Garibaldi's going to do in season five for example all right. Well, any last things before we head on into the sunset? Crickets. Yeah, yeah we'll throw in that, a blank. Take that as a no. All right. Well, just as a reminder, your homework is Exogenesis. So we will be back for that in a couple of weeks. Uh, again, do come to the website, b5audioguide.com. Hang out in the spoiler spoilery sections and give us your thoughts on this, as people often do. We have some some great conversation there, and I'd love for you guys to take part in it. So... Until next time, this is Erica in Edmonton, Shannon in Durham, and Chip in Durham. And you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. 